Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. Let's give ear now to the Word of God, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. We're relying upon God for His help this evening. Let's turn our attention to the passage that we just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, focusing our attention upon the tail end of verse 4. Verse 4. Here the Apostle is speaking to us of Christian love. As we've been working through this particular chapter, this sermon series, we've seen love is indispensable. If we have anything and everything else other than the true Christian love that results from a regenerate, born-again heart, then we have nothing. And Paul describes love for us in a variety of ways we've seen so far. He says that love suffers long and is kind. Love is patient. It bears with infirmities, even errors and sins of others. Covers them with a multitude, uh, love covers a multitude of sins and remains kind and loving and gracious. Love does not envy. 
when it sees other people enjoying things that in our flesh we might think, well, I should have that, that person doesn't deserve that, I'm being denied this and they're enjoying it and now I'm bitter toward them and wanting to bring them down to exalt myself. Love doesn't do that. Love does not parade itself. Love is not out to showcase itself, uh, which perhaps could provoke other people to envy. You see these two things fit together in many respects. We've seen that in previous weeks. But now we come to the next phase of this description. At the end of verse 4, love is not puffed up. And we've said before that this really should be integrally connected here in our understanding with love does not parade itself. Because what are we parading? Why are we parading? We're parading what we think is so great about ourselves, right? We tend, if we're going to parade something, we're going to parade what we think is a strength. Something we've done, you don't, you don't parade your perceived weaknesses and mistakes. We tend to parade things that we think are going to make us look good. And so that presupposes something even more basic to our sin, which is that we're puffed up, that we have an inordinate view of ourselves and of these so-called strengths in our lives. So what it's really saying here is love is not proud. Love is not proud of heart, and that pride of heart doesn't manifest itself through the, the flaunting and the vaunting and the parading. So we've looked at the outward fruit of this pride last time. This time we look at the origin of that parading, which is a puffed up heart of pride. And 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, we'll look at that in several respects, Lord willing, this evening. But Paul is speaking about the qualifications for elders, and he connects pride with being puffed up. He says, not puffed up with pride. So that you see the, the integral connection there. When he says puffed up, He's dealing with pride. And as we'll see throughout the Corinthian epistles, specifically 1 Corinthians, he says puffed up, makes that reference to being puffed up on uh, multiple occasions. So he's dealing here with the sin of pride in our hearts. And we might ask the question, what is pride? Well, from a previous sermon that I preached on pride, I had this definition. Pride is a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether as cherished in the mind or as displayed in behavior or conduct. And I don't have quotations around that. I'm not sure if I wrote that or if I got that from somebody else, but uh, when I preached on pride in Habakkuk 2.4. That was the definition we used. A high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether as cherished in the mind or as displayed in behavior or conduct. Once again, we've already looked at the, the vaunting and parading that displays it in conduct. So here we're honing in on pride as a uh, frame of mind as this superiority complex cherished in the mind. And, of course, when we go to uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 3, we find something similar said of this. Uh, when it says, midway through that verse, not to think of himself more highly 
than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So when we speak of pride, we're not seeking to encourage a false humility where we say a bunch of self-deprecating things that just fails to recognize the legitimate growth in grace that God has brought about in our lives. I mean, Paul says that we shouldn't think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but he says God has dealt grace and faith and gifts. If you follow the passage there in Romans 12, he's dealt these things. He's given these things to each one. So it's not just a matter of beating ourselves up and self-deprecation. There are things to recognize, and Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, how he worked harder than all the apostles by the grace of God, and yet he refers to himself as the least of the apostles because he had persecuted the church. So there is a balanced way of recognizing what God's doing in our lives, but Paul warns against this inordinately high opinion of ourselves, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. That's pride. That's that sort of self-centered orientation that we need to be on the lookout for. Uh, Just a few quotations. Thomas Brooks, Of all sins, pride is the most dangerous to the souls of men. Pride is a sin that will put the soul upon the worst of sins. Pride is a gilded misery, a secret poison, a hidden plague, It is the engineer of deceit, the mother of hypocrisy, the parent of envy, the moth of holiness, the blinder of hearts, the turner of medicines into maladies, and remedies into diseases. In other words, God's sanctifying us, then we take pride in that growth in grace, and we take what really should be the medicine and the remedy and we turn it into something that's worse than the disease itself. Uh, We take pride in ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this other guy. Remember in Luke chapter 18. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like that tax collector over there. Brooks says, It is the original and root of most of those notorious vices that are to be found among men. William Secker a Puritan. God abhors them worst who adore themselves most. Pride is not a Bethel, that is a house where God dwells, but a Babel, that is a noisome dungeon in which Satan abides. Thomas Brooks again, spiritual pride is the lifting up of the mind against God. It is a tumor and swelling in the mind. There's that puffed up idea and lies in despising and slighting of God, His Word, promises, and ordinances, and in the lifting up of a man's self by reason of birth, breeding, wealth, honor, place, relation, gifts, or graces, and in despising others. Of this spiritual pride, Habakkuk speaks, chapter 2, verse 4, His heart is lifted up in Him. His heart that is lifted up in Him is not upright. Uh, More could be said. We may refer back to some of those other quotations. But pride. And the most dangerous form of pride is spiritual pride. Brooks alluded to it. When we take pride, not just in our outward condition, but in our gifts or graces in the church. None of us is immune to this. Spiritual pride is a plague. It is a temptation. 
every step of the way in the Christian life. Once again, Luke 18, I thank you, Lord, that you've done this in my life and I'm, I'm so much better and superior to other people. We may not say that, but again, the Pharisees may not have been saying that either. Jesus puts that line in the Pharisee's mouth in the parable to bring out what was taking place in his own heart. And in the qualifications for an elder, I alluded to this. Paul says something uh, that I think that refers specifically to this spiritual pride. Not just pride in our possessions or in uh, outward physical beauty, but spiritual pride. He says, not a novice, not a neophyte, not someone who's uh, young and inexperienced in the faith. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Well, how did the devil fall into pride? He was a sinless, perfect, beautiful angel. And he took pride in that God-given beauty and said, I will be like the Most High. And he was condemned for it. So, if pride was the first sin of the devil, then everything that preceded it that he might have been taking pride in was spiritual. So, spiritual pride. That's the sin that brought sin and Satan into the world that tempted our first parents, opened Pandora's box, spiritual pride. And uh, 1 Timothy 3.6 tells us that that is a temptation for you, for me, for anybody, for elder qualified people, for elders, pastors, anybody and everybody, that is a huge problem. We need to be aware of that, being puffed up with pride. Paul talks about having all these various gifts and accomplishments without love. They, they're nothing. And I think this is helpful to think about. Do we take pride in the gift that God's given us to understand and explain biblical doctrine? Do we take pride in our ability to understand mysterious doctrines that other Christians don't understand? Do we get puffed up with a sense of our own worth and our own superiority because maybe uh, we have faith and our prayer life is stronger maybe than we perceive in other people? You know, we're moving mountains, as it were. And we're close to the Lord in an intimate prayer life. Uh, Paul was taken to the third heaven, and he heard unutterable things. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, I think it is, 12 or 13. But he heard these unutterable things. And God had to humble him through a thorn in the flesh so that he, the apostle Paul, who's writing this, who's the expert on humility in a way, um, but he had to be humbled and kept humble because of his intimate spiritual relationship with the Lord and the many mysteries that he was able to understand and receive from God because of his faith, because of his, his prayer life, because of all these things, he had to be humbled. How much more so you or me? Do you think I'm more humble than the Apostle Paul? Do you think you're more humble? Do you think you're less susceptible to pride than the Apostle Paul. So this is relevant for all of us. Spiritual pride. Um, bestowing all of our goods to feed the poor. We've done good works. We've labored for a good cause. We've given lots of money. Wh- whatever it is. Um, Though I give my body to be burned. Think about that. Now, 
of course, you've already given your body to be burned and reflecting back. I mean, but I think Paul's making a point here that things along those lines, that's an extreme example, but think of things that you would survive to later take pride in. Zealous deeds for the kingdom, evangelistic outreach, advancing the kingdom of God in whatever way God has gifted you to do, and sticking up for the truth even when it means that you get in trouble for it and you've made great sacrifices for the advance of the truth of Jesus Christ in the world and you've been persecuted and so on and so forth. You're willing to do all that. But you have to do that in in a love that doesn't puff itself up. The Apostle Paul, in many ways, did many of these things, but by the grace of God, he was not puffed up. Or if he was, he repented and, and, and grew in this area. So we understand the danger specifically of spiritual pride. Now, there is a threefold source of pride. We've already said it's the the sin of the devil, the condemnation of Satan himself. Isaiah chapter 14, 13, and 14. I will be like the Most High. I will ascend into the heavens. Lucifer, Satan, is seeking to exalt himself at the expense of the only true and living God. And that's pride. Paul says it's pride. He was condemned for that act of pride. And now he's seeking to sow seeds of pride, just like he did with Adam and Eve. You will be like God. He's been trying to hawk these same, this same bill of goods throughout the centuries. So Satan is sowing seeds of pride. He's the first proud individual, and he is not the last. In fact, the seed of the serpent is full of pride. We're told in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, we're told what's in the world. Uh, Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we're dealing with the kingdom of Satan, the world. We speak of the world, the flesh and the devil. The world is Satan's kingdom of pride. He says, for all that is in the world, what's in the world? What characterizes the world? Well, the lust of the flesh, physical appetites of various kinds. The lust of the eyes, covetousness on a broader scale. Obviously, you can covet the satisfaction of your flesh and your eyes and your flesh can work in tandem. But, but here, covetousness in more general terms. And the pride of life, which could also be translated pride in possessions. That's how that word is sometimes rendered. Pride in our outward living condition, our wealth, our influence, our reputation, our life, our resources, pride in possessions, pride in our outward life in this world. The pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So the world is a kingdom of pride. It's promoting pride. It wants you to be proud to be an American or to celebrate Pride Month and everything in between. Whether you're on the right or whether you're on the left, it doesn't matter. Satan wants you to take pride in this, that, or the other thing. The world is a kingdom of pride. Thirdly, the the third source of pride is the flesh. So it's not just 
The devil made me do it. You know, Satan sowing seeds of pride, tempting us to pride. It's not just the world with its billboards and its agendas that is trying to seduce us into pride or flatter us into pride. But this is a problem that occurs in our own hearts. We can't just sit back and say, well, Pride Month and all these uh, proud, wicked politicians, it's all out there. No, this is a problem in our hearts. Mark 7.21, Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. For everyone, uh, Jesus says, uh, Luke 18.14, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So pride comes from our heart. Pride comes from our decisions. We're either making decisions at any given moment, on any given day, to humble ourselves or to exalt ourselves. These are choices that we're making. And these are choices that come from, as Jesus says, from within, from the heart of men from our sinful flesh. Even as believers, we have remaining sin in our hearts. And that remaining sin, that flesh, it's not on the throne. It's not sovereign. It's not in a position of dominion. But it exists and it wants to take charge in our lives and cause us to be of the world and of the devil and to have that adrenaline rush, that pride of life coursing through our veins, thrilled by our own achievements, our own reputation, so on and so forth. The threefold source of pride. The devil, the world, and the flesh. Well, in what sense is pride the polar opposite of Christian love? In what sense? Because here we're told love is not puffed up. In other words, love is not proud. So in what sense are pride and Christian love opposites? Well, There's a number of ways we could look at this, but think of it this way. First of all, there are two aspects of Christian love, as we've seen. There is our love for God and our love for others. That's Christian love. And if we think of pride in its relationship to our love for God, it's quite obvious that it is totally antithetical to love for God. The idea that I am going to basically take upon myself the mindset of God's archenemy, the devil, and try to exalt myself at God's expense, because that's what we're doing, and have an exorbitant view of myself and exalt myself, essentially seeking to replace God, rather than John the Baptist who says, I need to decrease that he might increase. Instead, because it's really a zero-sum game in a certain sense, Instead, I'm saying, I'm going to increase, and what does that mean? That means God decreases. Because I'm minimizing and marginalizing the law of God if I'm self-righteous in my pride. I'm minimizing the sovereign grace of God if I'm taking credit for my salvation. I mean, you can go on down the line. It's a zero-sum game. When I take glory to myself and boast and have an inordinately high view of self, that is bringing God down and despising, minimizing God. That's, that's the opposite of love. As we saw from Thomas Brooks, spiritual pride is the lifting up of the mind 
against God. Another Puritan says, Pride sets men in opposition against God. In other sins, men run away from God, but pride is a coming against God. Pride makes men like the devil. It is the devil's disease. So in our pride, we're seeking to replace God. Seeking to detract from His glory. Romans 1.30 in the same breath speaks of haters of God and proud boasters. Because these two things, these three things really in that passage go hand in hand. Love not the world or the things in the world. And therefore John says you need to reject the pride of life. Because it's, it's the opposite of loving God. What about our love for others? How is Christian love antithetical to being puffed up with pride? How is that the case? We know the emphasis in this part of the passage is on our love for other people. Not that it doesn't involve love for God, but here the focus is on how we're relating to other people, suffering long with kindness, not envying, not parading ourselves before others. Love is not puffed up. That has a special relevance for our relationship with others. Now we could go to many passages and we could look at John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this than to give up his life for others, for his friends. If, uh, Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved his church and gave himself for her. And we can speak of love as a self-sacrifice. A self-sacrifice. Similar to what John the Baptist said, we're decreasing so that somebody else can increase. We're deflating so that we can help inflate somebody else, help encourage somebody else. It's inherently self-sacrificial. Romans chapter 12, which deals with our love for the brethren and fleshes out in a similar way to 1 Corinthians 13, what it means to love the brethren. It says this, verse 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. So pride says, I want my own way because I'm more important. I'm the priority. Me, myself, and I. Love without hypocrisy, kindly affectionate, brotherly love, is willing to give honor and credit to others. Willing to give the priority to others instead of oneself. It goes on in uh, verse, what we saw in verse 10, verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things. In other words, don't be high-minded. Don't have a superiority complex toward one another. But associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. So, in relationship to other people, it's a zero-sum game. The moment we begin to puff up with pride, we're going to encroach upon the space of others, if you will. You know, if you were in, a, in, a, in an elevator, you know. I mean, when I increase, okay, your space decreases and it creates problem. It creates friction. We step on toes. We can use a lot of idioms for that. But, but pride is at the heart of so many of the sins that entangle us in our relationships. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 13 and you look at the various statements that are made about love here, notice how pride 
factors in to most, if not all, of these things. So, love suffers long and is kind. Well, why would I be tempted to be impatient and intolerant toward the sins and shortcomings of other people and refuse to be kind? I expect other people to bear with my issues, so why do I get to be impatient and use that, you know, their problems as an excuse for me to go about with my unkind behavior? Well, it's because I view sins against me or irritations against me as more significant than irritations against other people. It's pride. It's pride. Plain and simple. Love does not envy. Well, why do I envy the person who got the job promotion instead of me? Because I think I deserved it. And again, we can run with that. And, and it's patently obvious that pride is at the heart of envy. Love does not parade itself. That's an obvious one. I'm parading things that I think are so great about myself that will look good in the eyes of others. Pride. Love does not behave rudely. You know, why do I think that I have a license to be rude and, and uh, other people, if they're doing something that I don't like, boom, that needs to be dealt with immediately. Why do I have that double standard as a sinner? Well, because of pride. Again, I think that what bothers me is a bigger deal than what, than what I do that bothers somebody else. Love does not seek its own. All of these things flow together. I seek my own way. I seek what benefits me, what I prefer. I seek my own agenda. Why? Because it's all about me. That's pride. Love is not provoked. So on the other side, this is the other side of behave rudely. Love is not easily provoked, we could say. And again, why is it that the things that bother me are such a big deal and I'm so easily provoked and I use excuses for my sinful response? It's because I really think it's a big deal when I'm bothered. Love thinks no evil. Now that verse, we're going to take a lot of time on that one because there are so many possible renderings of this. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love uh, does not have evil suspicions or evil interpretations of what other people are doing. But essentially, love is not judgmental, right? So if I'm judgmental toward others, we've talked about this in our morning series in Romans. Um, Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. If I'm judging others and not evaluating myself, that hypocritical, judgmental spirit, what is it? It's pride. It's self-righteousness. I'm the guy with the clipboard that goes around checking up on people and so on. So love doesn't keep a record of wrongs, isn't suspicious and judgmental. So all of these things at heart, at a heart level, are related to pride. So if we can nip this one in the bud by the grace of God, then we're going to have a fighting chance by the grace of God to fight these various other aspects of a lack of Christian love. Well, what are some of the symptoms of pride that we see in the church in Corinth? What are some of the symptoms of pride that are evident in the church at Corinth, in addition to parading themselves? I realize we've already dealt with that. We've already addressed the parading of themselves in various respects. But what are some other symptoms of pride in that church? Well, first, you have the despising of God's wisdom. And this is almost always included when we deal with pride. When pride rises up, 
Just like with Adam and Eve in the garden, when we're tempted to pride, we can very easily lean on our own understanding. That may be the suggestions of the devil like in Eden, but in this case, um, in Corinth, at the very least, they're leaning on their own understanding. Paul deals with this, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, that is in this world, in a sort of worldly wise man, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile, futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. So we can become puffed up in our own worldly wisdom. This happens in the church. This happened in the church in Corinth. And you see an example of it in chapter 5, because in chapter 5, Paul makes it clear that there's immorality in the church that is such that even the, the pagan Gentiles on the outside of God's kingdom wouldn't even speak of this sort of thing. It's a public scandal, a case of incest and sexual immorality. A man has his father's wife. And what does the wisdom of God's Word say to do in that situation? There's a scandal. It's such that even the watching world says this is a sexual scandal. And the Word of God would say what? Well, Paul tells them what he had told them in a previous letter or earlier in this letter, it's hard to say, but he says, verse 11 of chapter 5, I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, not even to eat with such a person. So church discipline. Church discipline is the biblical wisdom that God has prescribed for this type of situation. But in Corinth, they were puffed up with their own worldly wisdom. And so in their minds... They're thinking, well, yes, biblical church discipline, but we've got a better idea. We have our own methods here. In this case, we think that maybe it's not pragmatic or there are various extenuating circumstances. Notice what Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 5. After he addresses the immorality, he says, And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So the biblical wisdom says discipline, the worldly wisdom, the puffed up, prideful, human, worldly wisdom says otherwise. And if you go down to verse 6, he addresses it again. Your glorying, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So in other words, your worldly response, which doesn't enact church discipline as God has prescribed, according to his wisdom, that worldly wisdom isn't wise at all. Even pragmatically speaking, don't you realize, practically speaking, this is going to destroy and divide the church. A little leaven is going to leaven the whole lump. And your glorying, your boasting, your puffed up pride is not good. So Paul's addressing that, despising God's wisdom. And we need to be careful. It's hard in the life of a denomination, a presbytery, a congregation, it's hard when there are scandals to enact biblical church discipline. Let's not pretend that there are not serious temptations to do otherwise. 
which in one way or another in our lives, we've all succumbed to the pride, leaning on our own understanding, compromising. But we need to be certain about this, that, that uh, this is pride when we lean on our own understanding and we don't handle things in God's way. Another symptom in Corinth is the belittling of others. Belittling others. And this takes place especially with respect to the sectarianism that happened in that church. You had some people who, well, let me just read it. Chapter 1, verse 12. He says, each one of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, that's Peter, or I am of Christ. So there's this sectarianism. Some people latch on to this preacher. Some people latch on to that preacher. This preacher's better than that preacher. This is my guy. You've got your guys. So on and so forth. You see this worked out throughout the, the history of the church for 2,000 years. Sectarianism. Denominational sectarianism. We are the people. And wisdom dies with us. In the RPCNA. Or in the OPC. Or in the fill-in-the-blank belittling others, taking pride, puffing ourselves up in ourselves because of our favorite teachers, because of our pet theological views, because of the certain personalities and individuals in the church, because of our denominational affiliation. Whatever it is, we can be so easily puffed up to then belittle others. Well, you like to listen to Apollos on Sermon Audio. Yeah, well, you should check out Peter. And, uh, and so on and so And then the other guy, no, Christ. The real spiritual people in the building, right? The, the false humility there and the false piety. Belittling other people. That's a huge problem. And chapter 3, verse 3, it says, For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, and you are, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Verse 21, therefore let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in denominations. Let no one boast. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. But we need to be careful because we can attach these things to ourselves and whatever may be righteous about the cause that we've aligned ourselves with, we use it to puff ourselves up with superiority. Chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Puffing ourselves up because of one leader or group or movement against another. He says, For who makes you to differ from one another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, if you are who you are by the grace of God, and it's God's sovereignty that enabled you to come to believe in God's sovereignty, then don't boast in it. Don't have a superiority complex toward other Christians the truth of one doctrine may be superior to another. The truth of one cause may be superior to another, but that superiority is for God and His Word alone, not for us. Don't puff yourself up with pride as though it were not 
simply a mere gift of God. You see it again in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, with this controversy regarding food sacrifice to idols. Some people in the church were upset because there was uh, meat being sold in the marketplace that had been sacrificed to idols and then it comes in the meat market. And some people felt that it really was something a Christian should not be participating in. Shouldn't be eating that food or meat sacrificed to idols because think of all the associations of the idolatry that went into that meat and especially people who had been converted out of that kind of false religion Perhaps they felt uncomfortable eating it in their conscience because they recalled when they had perhaps feasted in a more overt form of idolatry with this type of food, this type of meat. And so they're campaigning against the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. Then you have other people who say, listen, there's no such thing as an idol. It's just demons promoting false religion. Zeus doesn't really exist and, and all of these things. So, so they're saying, look, Paul, we need, to, we need to deal with these people because they're concerned about this meat sacrificed to idols. We're not going to the idolatrous feast, so we're okay. We're just buying meat at the marketplace that may have been sacrificed to idols. And we need to just break it to these people that they have no idea what they're talking about. There's no such thing as an idol. Just eat the food. An idol is nothing. And Paul has to confront them. He says, now concerning things offered to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. And he's speaking here to the people that say, we know that technically it's okay to buy that at the marketplace. It's okay. It's not infected with Zeus or some kind of false god. It's just meat. And, but he says, we, we have that knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge gives us a sense of pride and superiority in relation to people that were against in this dispute and but he says love edifies love edifies and if anyone thinks that he knows anything okay mr smarty pants or whatever um if you think you know anything then you know nothing yet as you ought to know and he's confronting us in there is he not he's saying if you think you have all the answers and you think that your knowledge or my knowledge gives superiority against others who are at a different place in the school of Christ, then you know nothing. What we should be seeking to do is build up and encourage the church and instruct those people patiently in those issues and not hit them over the head with our superiority. And so we we need to be careful of this arrogant knowledge. We need a knowledge that lovingly edifies, builds up, equips, and disciples the church to know and obey God. And he says, if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So it's really integrally connected with love itself. So we need to be careful. I mean, we could go to many different examples throughout the epistles of Paul and throughout his letters to the churches in Corinth. But we need to be careful here. We need to recognize the importance of this, of being condescending in our attitude, of having that superiority mindset. Now, preaching through 1 Corinthians 13, understand, I'm preaching this to myself. I'm a pastor. I'm in leadership. 
I'm a father, I'm a husband. And if the Bible is correct, and it surely, it, it surely is, this will be a temptation for me. So this is not me saying, I think you're proud and I'm humble, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this is something the Bible says I, as an elder, should especially be worried about. And this has been a problem for church leaders throughout the centuries. So understand, um, I'm trying to internalize and take this seriously. And I would urge you to do the same. Because this mindset of picking people to pieces and belittling other people and exalting ourselves as a church, as a denomination, as individuals, as a family, whatever it is, this is utter poison. It got to the point in Corinth where 2 Corinthians 10 verse 10 They were picking Paul to pieces. They said that his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. So it never ends. It never ends. We need to nip it in the bud, this pride, belittling of others. In addition, we have the symptom of speaking empty, unedifying words. Speaking empty, unedifying words. In other words, talking a good game, saying great swelling things, saying powerful things that seem to take a strong stance against evil in the world or, or whatever. We're talking big, but we're not actually following it up with diligent labor, constructive, edifying investment in the people of God to actually see people embrace the principles, apply the principles, grow gradually in grace. Instead, it's just a bunch of sound bites. And I don't need to tell you, you've got to be careful about this on the internet. Proud, great, swelling words. It's easy for me to fall into uh, proud, great, swelling words in conversation. That's why I try to stay off social media. And, and, but it's out there. Great swelling words of pride, empty, unedifying words. Look at what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 18. He says, But some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, as though I'm not going to follow through on my promise to come. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power In other words, I'm not interested in words. He says the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. It's not just about getting on our podcasts and getting on Twitter and saying these great mighty things against the evils of our age. What are we doing practically? More than sound bites, what are we doing constructively for the kingdom of God? Corinth was all talk. I can be all talk. Maybe you can be all. Let's not be all talk. Let's humble ourselves. Another symptom is the last one I'll mention. Refusing to confess sins. This is a sign of pride. Uh, John Owen says, No wild beast in a toil doth more rave and tear and rend than a proud man when he is reproved. Is that, is that true of you? It's true of me. Is it true of you? I, it probably is. It's true of me. It's a temptation that's common to man. We don't like to be reproved. Our knee-jerk reaction is what? We don't want to be reproved. We can be like a wild beast. That's pride. That's our sinful pride. And in Corinth, it got to the point where people were actually defrauding each other. Chapter 6, verse 8, No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat 
and you do these things to your brethren, and people are being confronted. They're refusing to admit their injustice to the point where they, they're even tempted to go to the civil magistrates of the pagan Roman Empire rather than just admit the obvious fact that they were cheating people and wronging them. They were proud. They wouldn't admit their obvious faults. And that's you, that's me, until we uh, get to glory. But it doesn't have to be us. We can overcome that by the grace of God. Now, the Lord takes pride very seriously, my friends. We may not take it as seriously, but He takes it very, very seriously. Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 and 17, the six things that the Lord hates, seven are an abomination. What's the first one on the list? A proud look. A proud look. We know what that is, right? We, you know, siblings, we look at our sibling when they've done something wrong. Oh, you know, a proud look. That's an abomination in the sight of God. Same word he uses for homosexuality and, and various other perversions. God hates it. Bible says God opposes the proud. God is the arch enemy of pride. He hates pride. Thankfully, if we're believers, He hates it in the sense that He will sanctify us and He will help us defeat our pride or He'll take a chunk out of us to help us defeat our pride with the thorn in the flesh. But He hates our pride. He opposes the proud. How seriously do we take pride not very seriously. You read the Psalms, so many of the prayers of the Psalms involve God's people crying out for justice against the proud. Psalm 12.3, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Psalm 94 verse 2, rise up, O judge of the earth, render punishment to the proud. We should hate pride. We should be interceding against it. We should not tolerate it. Psalm 101 verse 5. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure, says David in his kingdom. So we need to take pride far more seriously than we do. Uh, This has become a respectable sin. And in one sense, why is the church the way it is today? Because God opposes the proud. If ever there was a church in a nation where you see God opposing it and you see His chastisements and you see a lack of fruit compared to the past, it's the church in America. It's us. Pride. We need to take it seriously. It should not be a respectable sin. In fact, it's a very dangerous sin. The connection between pride and apostasy in the Bible is almost an inseparable connection. Uh, The Puritan quote that I read earlier from Habakkuk 2 verse 4, let me just turn your attention back to that. As I said, I I preached on this a couple years ago. Habakkuk 2 and verse 4, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. What's the contrast there? The contrast is between the proud and and the Christian. There are two options here. There is the proud, his soul is not upright in him, and there is the just, who shall live by his faith. Those are the two options. If we're characterized by pride, we cannot be characterized by true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And so, pride 
and the gospel are at odds. To the extent that we become puffed up with pride, the wind is let out of our sails in terms of the gospel and true faith. Pride leads to apostasy. In fact, when Hebrews chapter 10 quotes this verse, Habakkuk 2.4, it substitutes the, the phrase puffed up for draw back. So, if you, um, his soul is not upright in him, it speaks of the, uh, the person here as being puffed up. It's, it's kind of a, a functional equivalence in the translation. But it, it actually includes the word, the phrase, puffed up. It quotes the passage in Habakkuk, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Excuse me, for puffed up it says draw back. What is it saying? It's saying that to be puffed up with pride is to draw back from true saving faith. The Apostle Paul deals with this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 and following, when he speaks of false teachers who are promoting an agenda of pride. He says, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions. Throughout the Scriptures, even the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2 is characterized by satanic pride. Great swelling words exalting himself as God in the house of God. So the relationship between pride and apostasy is such that to be filled with pride cannot but produce backsliding, if not full-fledged apostasy from the kingdom of God. So we need to take it very seriously. And we'll conclude with the Lord's twofold remedy for pride. What is the twofold remedy for pride? Well, the first aspect is God's providence. Those who exalt themselves shall be humbled, the Bible says. Luke 14, 11, it's quoted in many other passages. Luke 18, God humbles the proud. So much so that in 2 Corinthians 12, we said that God, to prevent Paul from becoming proud, brought a thorn in the flesh. So you can rest assured as a believer that if you are in danger of falling into pride, or especially if you've fallen into pride and you are puffed up with pride and you are a believer, the Lord providentially will humble you. He will bring things into your life and mine that will let the wind out, that will you know, uh, burst the balloon of this puffed up spirit of pride. And we need to recognize that. It's a blessing. It's a gospel benefit. It's something that's part of our adoption as children of God that we can expect God to chasten our pride and humble us so that we can be among those who inherit the kingdom of God. But it could be a painful thing. It's painful in my life. It's painful in your life. When God brings things, perhaps He's doing it right now. There's something you're going through and it's very painful, but maybe it will be help, helpful to you as you're going through it to recognize God's using it to humble you. God's using the shame, the embarrassment, whatever it is 
the pain, the difficulty, the misery. He's using that to humble you and make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. God in His providence humbles us as believers. He humbles the wicked in a way at times. Sometimes He destroys them with judgment like Herod, eaten by worms. Other times He waits till the last great day. But with believers, providentially, He will do this. He will do this. And I think that's the key to 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. Because it's saying not a new convert. Not someone who's new to the Christian faith. Someone who's new and doesn't have experience, hasn't lived the Christian life long enough to go through the providential judgments of God, experiences in God's providence that will bring humility. Paul is saying that with Christian experience comes experiences in the Christian life where God providentially humbles us. And that is absolutely true. And my friends, that is something that we ought to be looking for proactively in our Christian lives so that we would be examining ourselves and examining our circumstances to benefit from these learning experiences, these teachable moments in the providence of God. We need that. We need to be humbled. We need that experience so that we can not only have a, a V8 revving theological engine, but so that we can have a steering wheel that, you know, to keep it between the lines, the experience and the humility that comes with time in the Christian life. But of course, there's the easy way. That's the hard way, so to speak. The easy way, without all the chastisement and providential judgment, is simply that God humbles us by His truth. And Paul always prefers the easy way. I mean, there's the hard way, but the easy way that he employs in Corinth throughout this epistle is that he urges them to think about the truth. Think about the truth of the gospel that ought to humble them. Chapter 1, verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. You you aren't the sharpest tools in the shed, the, the brightest bulbs. God doesn't call the best and the brightest. Not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world. So if you have good doctrine and God's chosen you and put you in the life of the church and given you faith to move mountains and He's done all these things and He's chosen you for that great privilege of serving Him, understand He's chosen the foolish things. So the greater your privilege, the greater His grace in your life, the more humbling it should be. Because He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The weak things to shame the things that are mighty. The base things and the things that are despised He has chosen so that no flesh would glory in His presence. Meditate on that truth. Meditate on that truth. What do you have that you've not received as a free gift, Paul says. Meditate upon that truth. Who makes you to differ? How is it that Paul in chapter 15 can, can go on and on about all the work that he's done for the kingdom and it's by the grace of God? How is it that he's able to maintain humility? Because he's thinking about his own sin. I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Think about your sin. Think about before you were saved what you were. What you were by nature. Those converted later in life. What you were in in time and space and history, the sins you've committed, the people you've wronged, the shame and the reproach. 
think of that and be humbled, not discouraged, humbled by it as you reflect on what God is doing in your life. But it's the truth. The truth. The more we're humbled by the truth, the more we have a knowledge that doesn't puff us up, but actually you know, reduces, pops the bubble of pride and reduces it, the more, my friends, we will enjoy the blessing of God. We won't need a thorn in the flesh. We won't need as much chastisement. We need to focus on the easy way and not the hard way as we seek to humble ourselves. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks for Your Word, which is so relevant to each one of us. We know our pride. We know that there is not anything You've given to us or done for us that we cannot enlist and corrupt and poison with our own pride. We pray that You would convict us of our pride and of our sinful attitudes towards others, belittling them, marginalizing them. We pray that You would show us our sin and Your sovereign grace which allows no flesh to glory in Your sight. We pray that You would humble us individually as families and as a church, that You might exalt us and use us mightily to advance Your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.